So last week, we uh, looked at the Last Supper on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed. And uh, we especially focused on the cup of the new covenant, which was the cup of salvation. But it was also a cup of death. And Jesus used that cup analogy to point to what he would do the next day. And it's not the first time that Jesus has used a cup analogy. You might remember when James and John uh, asked Jesus if they could sit at his right and left hand in glory. Jesus replied in Mark chapter 10, he said, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. And Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Now, what cup, what baptism, what cup was Jesus referring to? Well, James and John didn't know. They didn't understand. They didn't have a clue what Jesus meant. They still thought Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and would ascend the throne and be crowned as the king of Israel. And Jesus would go up and ascend onto a Roman cross. He would be crowned with a crown of thorns. He would have a sign over him saying, this is the king of the Jews, as he hung on a cross, and there would be somebody on his right and on his left, two thieves dying alongside of him. James and John didn't know what they were asking, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew the cup that, it was, that was awaiting him, and it was a cup of covenant, a cup of sacrifice, A cup filled with blood. His blood. We see Jesus again in today's passage refer to the cup. As Jesus will pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and ask for this cup to pass from before Him, to ask for this hour to pass from Him, Jesus looked at the cup set before Him. And do you know what Jesus saw in that cup? He saw death and damnation in that cup. He saw your sin and my sin and all the sin of humanity in that cup. And as we know, on Good Friday, Jesus drank that cup for us. He drank deeply from the cup of sin and death, the cup of judgment and wrath. He drank our sin to the dregs. And He did it out of love for us and out of submission to His Father. And the truth is, James and John would indeed drink from a similar cup. They would both give their lives and suffer for the cause of Christ. James would be the first of the apostles martyred for his faith. He'd be the first one to die for Jesus. And John would be the last after living an old age in exile on the Isle of Patmos. But every disciple of Jesus has to face that cup. The cup of suffering and service and sacrifice For the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus promised us, if the world hates me, it will hate you because you belong to me. And maybe you remember way back in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus described what the life of discipleship looks like. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
The call to Christian discipleship is the call to die. To die to self. To die to sin. To die to the ways of the world. It's a call to sacrificial giving and sacrificial living. And it's not for the faint of heart. Y'all, this isn't child's play. This is life and death, and nothing short of the fate of the world hangs in the balance. And so we have to ask ourselves, when the cup is placed in front of me, will I drink it? Will I drink from this cup? When the time comes for me to stand boldly for Jesus, to sacrifice myself for the kingdom, whatever that looks like in that moment, will I be willing to do it? How will we respond to suffering? How will we respond to persecution as a follower of Jesus Christ? When the world tempts us to stray from the path, to forsake the ways of Jesus, when we're tempted to compromise, what will we do? When God calls us to sacrificial giving, to step outside of our comfort zone, to serve or to share the gospel with someone, or in faith, maybe He asks us to... Risk our reputation. Risk our friends. Risk our earthly possessions. How will we respond? Well, in today's passage, we see four possible ways that we can respond when we find the cup of hardship and sacrifice and obedience sitting in front of us. But before we look at that, I want us to look at Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 31. This is right after the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples sang their hymn and they departed from the upper room to go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in verse 27 it says that Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told them, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. You know, I think Peter really meant that. I think Peter meant that with all of his heart. I think Peter's intentions were good. His heart was in the right place. But his commitment to Jesus was based on self-confidence, not Christ-confidence. Just think of some of the things Peter has said. You know, here he says, Lord, I will never forsake you. I will never deny you. I will die for you. I will go to the grave for you. Earlier when, when uh, Jesus was telling about what all was going to have to happen to him, Peter said, said, never, Lord, I will never let anything happen to you. And, and we know later on that night that Peter was willing to fight for Jesus when the temple guard showed up with Judas, Peter drew out his sword and he cut off the ear of the temple guard and I have a funny feeling that the ear wasn't quite what he was aiming for. But each time Peter said or did anything like this, Jesus rebuked him. He corrected his perspective. See, Jesus has no illusions about human nature. He understands very well our hearts. In fact... Here in a, in a little bit, Jesus will say in verse 38 that the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. As, as true and sincere as our love for Jesus may be, He knows we're weak. We're flawed. 
The sinful nature within us is constantly at war with any desire we have to obey and serve and love God. Paul describes it as an inner struggle where we long to do the right thing, but time and again we miserably fail and we do the things that we know we shouldn't. Our hearts, our spirit is willing. We, we long to love Jesus supremely to do the right things, but our flesh is weak. Our sinful nature is always at work against us. And if we're not careful, we can allow ourselves to be dazzled, to be flattered by our own professed love for God, by our own religiousness and faithfulness. We can end up trusting in our faith more than Jesus' faithfulness. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were so enamored with their own knowledge of Scripture and their own faithfulness to their religious rituals, they thought that they were the, 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 you know, the good stuff. The disciples struggled with the same thing. And so here in verses 27 and 28, Jesus is telling Peter, and by extension, each of us, soon in pain you will discover it's not your love. It's not your goodness or your knowledge. It's not your faithfulness or strength that will keep us together. No, Peter, I, your Lord alone, am the one that keeps us together. It's me. James and John truly believed they could drink whatever cup that Jesus could drink. Peter really believed that he would die for Jesus before he would ever deny him. And I'm sure most of us would say the same thing, right? We want to think that we would be faithful and true to Jesus no matter what happens. But this story is a grim reminder that we need to rely on God's grace more than our good intentions. Because we are not that different from these men in the garden. So I want you to consider this sermon as sort of a public service announcement. I want to give you three, three potential responses that we need to watch out for when we are faced with that cup of suffering and sacrifice. And one response that I hope that we will be able to make. So the first response we need to watch out for is one of apathy. Apathy, indifference. Look with me at verse, we're going to skip down to verse 37. We're going to skip around in this, this passage a little bit. Uh, verse 37, you know, Jesus has told the disciples to, to stay awake and pray with me, as Ben was saying, but Jesus goes to pray and he keeps coming back and they, they're asleep. You know, time and again he goes back and they're asleep. And so verse 37, he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. I don't know, maybe they were driving back from you know, Atlanta late you know, after the, the Braves won or something. I can understand this morning. If some of you guys can't keep your eyes open and stay awake, I understand. I, I, I won't call you out this morning. They didn't know what to say to him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. Now, Peter, James, and John exemplify how we tend to sleep through life's critical moments. Unaware that our discipleship and our faith is being tested. Jesus 
asks us to do nothing less than participate with Him in the saving of the world. And we can't even stay awake. We're lulled to sleep by the entertainment and the pleasures of this world. We're so consumed by worldly concerns that have no eternal consequences. We need revival, church. We need to be awakened from our stupor. Awaken to the reality that people's eternal destinies are at stake. That there are spiritual forces of darkness at work in the world all around us. And God has called us and empowered us to be a part of His making all things new. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Get up, wake up, sleeper. Rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. And Peter writes this in 1 Peter 5. He tells us to be sober-minded and alert because our adversary the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone that he can devour. Well, I don't think we have to be in danger much of countering roaring lions walking around But you know what we do have to watch out for? That is falling asleep behind the wheel. If you've ever been driving back from a late game in Athens or Atlanta, or if you've ever been on a long road trip, you understand that temptation. Your eyes get heavy. You just want to, oh, let me just close them for a minute. This is a nice long straight stretch. I'm just going to close my eyes for just a minute. Oh, that temptation can be so strong, but it's deadly. Listen. Too many Christians are asleep at the wheel. Too many churches are asleep at the wheel, choosing to be indifferent and apathetic to the eternal mission and purposes of God. What about you? Are you asleep at the wheel today? Are you, at the very least, are you on autopilot, just kind of cruising along through life, indifferent to the Great Commission and the multitudes of people that are destined for hell? Wake up, church! Wake up, sleeper. Rise up from the dead and let Christ shine through you. Because guess what? The days are evil. We need to be alert. We need to make the most of our time, y'all. This world is evil. This world is in desperate need of Jesus. This country is in desperate need of Jesus. We need to be sober and awake because Satan is prowling around seeking to devour us. Are you asleep at the will? Are you apathetic? Like Peter, Andrew, James, and John were in a moment of crisis. They had no idea what was about to come. Though Jesus had tried to tell them. Church, God is trying to tell us what's about to come. Are we awake? Are we awake? The second response you need to watch out for is betrayal. Look at verse 43. Let's continue on in verse 43. While he was still speaking... Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived, and with him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And his betrayer, Judas, had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said. He's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when they came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him, arrested him. Judas made a conscious choice to betray Jesus. He wore the mask of friendship. He greeted Jesus with a kiss. 
that kills. And, and, and the other disciples, though they failed, though they were asleep, though they would run away, and they, would, they would abandon him and they would deny him, at least they intended to be faithful and strong. But Judas sought to betray Jesus while pretending to be his friend. It's not that his spirit was willing and his flesh was weak. No, Judas's heart was one of betrayal. And I believe that there are people in churches today who have betrayal in their hearts and they don't even know it. Because like Judas, they wear a mask. A mask of discipleship. Oh, they know all the right answers? All the good Sunday school answers? They know how to, how to act the part? They put on their mask on Sunday mornings and they come to church, but betrayal is in their hearts. They're Christian in name only. Is that you? What's in your heart? Are you just wearing a Christian mask, you know, like a Halloween costume, so you can come to God and get your treats? Listen, I'm here to tell you that you're getting nothing but a trick. You deceive yourself if you think you can put on a mask and fool God. Jesus knew what was in Judas's heart all along. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. And woe to the man who betrayed Jesus. A third response we should avoid is one of desertion. We continue in verse 47. It says, one of those who stood by, and Mark very graciously doesn't tell us it's Peter, but we know that it's Peter from other Gospels, drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him, and they caught hold of him. But he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Here we meet another one of these nameless disciples who once again, his identity is reduced to a single act, running away in fear. We've met a number of these nameless disciples lately. The woman with the jar of perfume whose identity was reduced to this act of pure, selfless, uh, luxurious love. We met last Sunday the nameless disciples who opened up their home and risked everything they had to lose to welcome Jesus into their presence. And here we see a young man who flees to save himself. Now some scholars think that this might himself be Mark, the author of the book. Because as we talked about last week, some think that maybe it was John Mark's uh, family that owned the, the home where the upper room was. So maybe young Mark was there witnessing all those events of the Last Supper and he curiously followed Jesus and his band of disciples out to the garden to witness from a distance and to hear what Jesus might be saying. But if it is Mark, he's opted to join this band of nameless disciples, hasn't he? But this time, this nameless disciple's identity is marked by an act, not of love, not of sacrifice, but of self-preservation. He couldn't deny himself. He couldn't take up his cross. He couldn't risk losing himself. Rather, he was willing to save himself at any cost, even if it meant abandoning Jesus. And as he runs away, he is stripped bare 
by his actions. There is nothing to hide the shame of denying and deserting Jesus Christ. And aren't we just as likely as this young man, as these disciples, aren't we just as likely to flee in a time of pressure or panic? Listen, Jesus knew this was going to happen. He predicted it. He said, you all will fall away. And by that, he wasn't saying that they would eternally lose their salvation. No, what he meant is they would temporarily lose their courage. They would become afraid when push came to shove and they would run away. Look back with me again at verses 27 and 28. Jesus said, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But... After I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Jesus gives us hope. Even though he's going to die and the sheep will be scattered, he says that's not where the story is going to end. The shepherd will come back and he will rescue. He will restore his scattered sheep. Yes, he gives us a word of grace and mercy and hope that though we may turn away from him, our good shepherd never turns away from his sheep. He will go to all costs to bring them home. When we're faced with the distractions of this world, with the scorching heat of persecution, what are we going to do? When the weeds of greed and worldly pleasure threaten to grow up and to strangle out the life of the Spirit within us, will we deny Jesus? When the world comes at us with their clubs and torches, will we just be indifferent? to the Great Commission? Will we betray Him for personal gain? Will we desert Him to save ourselves? If you're like me, you're like Peter, and you want to say, of course I wouldn't do that, Lord. I would never abandon you. I would never deny you or desert you. I love you. I I would do anything for you, even if it means dying for you. Yes, we want to believe that we can drink from the cup. But will we? Will we? There's one more response we can make when we're presented with this cup of suffering and service and sacrifice, and it's one that Jesus exemplifies for us. And that is submission to the Father's will in faith. We've skipped over the actual praying of Jesus in the garden. Let's go back to verse 32. When they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. And he went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Listen, Jesus struggled with the Father's will in the garden here. Jesus didn't have a a martyr complex. He didn't want to drink from this cup. He didn't want to suffer the wrath that he knew that was in this cup. He didn't want to to die. Jesus, yes, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And once again, as Mark does, he highlights the humanity of Jesus. I mean, try to put yourself in his shoes. If you've ever had to say goodbye to someone, if you've ever moved away uh, you know, to another place and left your loved ones behind, you can understand that as Jesus looks at this night, he realizes these past three and a half years are over. 
The daily walks and talks with these twelve and and the others around them are are no more that after this night, He's going to die. He's going to be buried. Yes, He'll rise from the grave, but then 40 days later, He's ascending back to heaven. I think Jesus was sad about that. He was overwhelmed with sorrow, almost to the point that it was almost more than He could bear. Literally, uh, Mark says that horror and anguish overwhelmed him. He was overwhelmed by the horror and anguish of what he saw in that cup, of what he knew he would experience on the cross. Yes, he wanted to fulfill the Father's purpose and will, but in his humanity he just wondered, is there any other way? Is there another way? And we know there was not, and ultimately Jesus submitted to the will of his Father and obeyed. But I want us to end today by considering how can we do the same? How can we, like Jesus, submit in faith and trust to God's will and obey Him faithfully regardless of the consequences? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 38. Watch and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. As Ben mentioned, he's already taught them how to pray and what we call the Lord's Prayer. And I believe that what we see here in the Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus embodying that prayer. He's showing us by example how to pray that prayer, not just in word, but in deed, with sweat and tears and blood and sacrifice. Here Jesus is living out the Lord's Prayer in real time. Considering the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to say, lead us not into temptation. And here in verse 35, Jesus prayed that if it's possible, the hour might pass from Him. Now in both verse 38 and in the Lord's Prayer, that word temptation, it can mean tempting us to sin, but it can also mean trial, hardship, suffering. I think both apply here. Because aren't we often tempted to sin as a way to avoid the hardship, the suffering? You know, we're tempted to to cut corners. We're tempted to bend the truth just a little bit. We're tempted to maybe shortchange somebody or go back on our word. Consider Jesus' temptations in the wilderness at the beginning of His ministry. Satan tempted Him three times, but really they were all about the same thing. Use your power and position as the Son of God to spare yourself pain and discomfort. Think about it. He said, Jesus, are you hungry? There's no need for you to fast. Turn these stones to bread. Satan said, Jesus, let's show the people that you really are the Messiah. Demonstrate your power. Jump off the temple and let the people watch the angels rescue you. There's no need to keep all this a secret and keep the people guessing. They'll immediately crown you as king. Satan said, Jesus, you've come to rescue the world, right? There's no need to suffer and die to do that. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Every one of those temptations is about using his power and position to cut corners, to avoid the pain and suffering of the cross. And remember, through Peter, Satan again tempted him. You don't have to do this. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Well, I believe once more here in Gethsemane, Jesus is tempted to take the easy way out, to avoid paying the price to save his own skin. How did Jesus overcome all of these temptations by watching and praying. By looking to the Word of God and lifting Himself up in prayer to the Father and that's how you and I can overcome temptation as well. Secondly, in the Lord's Prayer, He tells us not only to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here in the garden, Jesus prayed, take this cup from me. 
When we ask God to lead us from temptation and to deliver us from evil, we're asking God to save us from our own tendencies to give in to our trials and temptations. We're asking Him to save us from the evils around us that want to damage us, not just physically, but spiritually, to compromise our, 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 our walk with Christ and our witness to the world. But here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we witness how God is our Good Shepherd who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we fear no evil. Look at verse 36. Between these last two sentences where Jesus says, Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Between those two sentences, Jesus is passing through the shadow of temptation and coming out to the other side in the light of victory. Three, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here in the garden, Jesus concludes, Nevertheless, not what I will, but Your will be done. The foundation for each of Jesus' requests was the attitude of faithful obedience and trust in His Father. And in verse 41, when Jesus goes to the disciples one last time, and He says, Enough! The time has come! Get up and let's go! Jesus is saying, the die is cast. I'm fully committing to the Father's will. There's no turning back now. And He takes that cup and He tips it back and He starts drinking it that moment. God's will be done. He tells us to pray, your kingdom come. And really God's coming kingdom was all that Jesus' life, ministry and death embodied and was meant to bring about. Jesus' followers wanted to obey God, but the weakness of their flesh won out. So Jesus did what they couldn't do. Jesus did what we couldn't do. He faced this moment of crisis, truly longing for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. And in the end, God gave something far greater than just sparing Him from that moment of death. God gave Jesus eternal victory over death that He's been able to pass on to you and me because he prayed for God's will to be done and God's kingdom to come. And one final thing from the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to start that prayer with our Father in heaven. How did Jesus start his prayer here in the garden? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Jesus teaches us to pray as he did. Like a child coming to his or her dad with a need in the garden, Jesus is a son crying out to his father because he's in desperate need of him. Without him, he cannot survive. He needs his Abba. That Aramaic word is our equivalent of the word dad. It's a word of familiarity. It's a word of intimacy. And nowhere else in ancient literature is God ever referred to by this intimate term. Jesus is the first person to reach out to God. As Abba. Jesus is running like a child in perfect trust and dependence, believing that no matter what happens, his dad's got this. He's going to see him through. Paul applies the same intimacy to our relationship with God. Listen to what he says in Galatians 4. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out what? Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son. And since you were a son, God has also made you an heir. Again, in Romans 8, Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And Paul says that if we are God's children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Now I want you to listen to me. We are far more than just observers of these events in Gethsemane. We're participants. We are in this garden as one of Jesus' disciples. And this became painfully clear to me a couple of years ago when I had the honor and privilege of standing in the Garden of Gethsemane amidst those olive trees, looking up at the Temple Mount. Even though 2,000 years later I stood there, it was not hard to imagine myself in that garden that night, fighting my own tendencies to fall asleep in moments of crisis, looking up at the hill and seeing the enemy come, Because listen, guys, the world is coming at us with their clubs of greed and their swords of hate. They're coming to destroy and to distract and to deceive us. Will we sell Jesus out in that moment or will we sell our all to follow Jesus out of the garden and to the cross? What will we do? Will we run away naked in sin and shame or will we stand with Jesus and be clothed in righteousness? Depends on whether we follow Jesus' instructions or not. Will we watch and pray so that we will not fall into temptation? This morning, if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the eternal salvation of your soul, then the Spirit of Christ is within you. The Spirit that adopts you into the family of God. Listen, He's not some distant deity. He's your Abba. He's your Father who loves you so much and Jesus is your high and holy brother. You are co-heirs with Christ. And as Paul wrote in Romans 8, that means as co-heirs of Christ that we will share in His sufferings. We will have that cup in front of us. But if we share in His cup of suffering, it means that we also share in His glory. So take heart, Christian. Though your flesh may be weak, praise God, through our weaknesses, His strength is made perfect. So no matter what you face, know this morning the Good Shepherd is with you. The Holy Spirit lives within you. The Spirit of adoption that makes you a part of the family of God. And if you watch and pray, you will endure. By His indwelling power, you can drink whatever cup He places before you and overcome. But listen to me, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never turned in Him in confession of your sins, repenting, turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus as your Savior, I want to tell you this morning, you are not a child of God. He is not your Abba. I know people love to say, hey, we're all God's children. Listen, you're God's creation. And God loves you. You are made in His image. You have sacredness and infinite worth and value, but you are lost and destined for hell. You are not a part of the family of God till you turn from your sins and put your trust in the One who died on the cross so that you could become adopted into the family of God. But you've got to receive that gift. You've got to turn from your sins to be saved today. You've got to be willing to follow Jesus. And listen, that road is not an easy road. 
It requires denying yourself and taking up a cross, an instrument of death, and following Jesus. Are you willing to be crucified with Christ? Listen, it's worth it. Because when you're crucified with Christ, that's when Christ begins to live through you. And that's a life worth living. It's a life of following Jesus every day and trust and dependence. And when the time comes, yes, you may have to drink from the cup of suffering. Yes, you will have to drink from the cup of service and sacrifice. That also means you get to drink from the cup of glory. Where do you stand with Jesus today? Where in that garden are you today? Are you asleep? Are you coming with betrayal in your heart? Are you going to run from Jesus when the times get tough? Or are you going to stand with Jesus, watching and praying and submitting to the Father's will? This morning, if you need to put your trust in Jesus for salvation, if you have any doubt in your mind where you will spend eternity, I invite you to come right now as we sing and settle today that you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and that God is your Abba. He wants to be your Abba. Will you come? And if you are a believer, I hope that you will be asking yourself today, where are you in that garden tonight? Maybe you need to come and pray at this altar and ask God to wake you up and to give you strength to stand, to help you watch and pray. Would you stand with me and pray? Father, we are thankful that You are God of grace and mercy. You understand how weak and flawed we are. Lord, there's really nothing we can ever do that disappoints You because You already know that we are but dust, that we are frail and weak. But You love us anyway, and You have provided the way for us to be saved despite our sin, despite our wickedness, despite the betrayal in our heart, despite the tendency we have to preserve ourselves at all costs, You have made a way to forgive us of that and to transform us from the inside out. We don't have to run away in nakedness and shame. We can stand with You and be clothed in robes of righteousness. And if there's anyone here today that needs to do that, I pray they would come right now and simply say, Jesus I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I want you to save me. I want you to come into my heart. I want you to live through me and help me to follow you. Help me to take up my cross daily and walk with you. Lord, whatever you're speaking to people's hearts today, I pray they would come in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.